Welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Rebecca Lagman, and I am the host of this episode. Today, I'm delighted to be having an in-person interview with the one and only Bill Tropic. Dr. William Tropic is an associate professor at Michigan State University, where he directs the Close Relationship Lab. Now, to provide a little context for those listeners who do not know the current constellation at Michigan State University, Bill is one of my two postdoc advisors. Thus, I will ask all my questions with the utmost respect. <laughs> you better. <laughs> Hi, Bill. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks. It's so great seeing you. I, I've been on sabbatical, so I feel like I haven't seen a lot of people. And I was joking with my friends that I've forgotten their names since being gone. I'm Rebecca. I'm your postdoc. Wait, you're not Vipka or Micah? <laughs> or, oh, yeah, that's right. You're Rebecca. Um, But it's so great being here. And I'm a long-term fan of the pod. Oh, so it's really great to, to be on. Thanks. It's also weird because it's, yeah, my first in-person interview. Uh, yeah, there's an energy in the room that's that's so different. <laughs> so also to provide some context, we have three different bowls of snacks. So oh, if you hear a so crunching good. sound, <laughs> we're just snacking away. Yeah. All right. So, Bill, I struggled summarizing what you study because given you that you study so much and you're so productive, could you give me your elevator pitch or how would you summarize your own research? Yeah, to, to your credit, we do a lot of different things. So when people ask what I do, I say, oh, I study close relationships and how the people in them change over time across situations. But, you know, in reality, we kind of broadly study all sorts of things that try to describe the human and sometimes the dog experience. So that might be you know, where you live, who you love, how you navigate life, and who you interact with. So that's usually the elevator pitch, but then it, it doesn't always do it justice, the types of things we do. Yeah, yeah, you study so much. I am, um, many who study personality focus on like construct like big five traits, but you study many different other constructs, including gratitude, optimism, attachment, control perceptions, narcissism, wisdom, etc. <laughs> Many of your studies have been surrounding attachment and optimism. Could you give me a summary of your research in that area? What were the most fascinating things that you just found or found in the, in the past? Yeah, historically, we do some big five personality research, but yeah, it's it's more characteristic that we don't do kind of big five traits or we don't study them as often. But yeah, so I, I was raised as an attachment researcher, aren't we all, <laughs> with our caregivers, but I was just really, really fascinated by how close relationships change and morph into different, you know, different things over time. You know, in grad school, I would often love these studies I'd read of these, like, really large samples characterizing how people differ by age or how men and women are different, kind of these demographic characteristics. And, you know, at the time in grad school, I was kind of struggling a lot with getting studies to work and, you know, trying to find my identity and see what projects to work on. And, you know, to her credit, my advisor, Robin Edelstein, was had said, you know, you love these studies so much, you know, you could do those things. And, and like, it, naive student, I was like, oh, I, I guess so. I, I want to do those things. So, so one of the first things we did, and it's still one of my favorite papers, is looking at this really, really big cross-sectional age difference project where we showed kind of how attachment differs by age called Cradle to the Graves in the title. And that opened up my eyes for a lot of things like methods and sample size and the types of work I want to spend my time on. So like that, that research, we found that we found a bunch of things consistent with uh, some theories about how we settle into relationships. Personally, it was great because I was like really anxious about relationships at the time. And it gave me hope that over time, I won't. You're 60. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Someday. Yeah. I mean, uh, for the listeners, the age differences are small. But yeah, the hope is that, you know, I settle into relationships. They make me a little less anxious. So 
Uh, yeah, a lot of the attachment work is just trying to characterize like how people differ and change. The optimism that was also just more of a philosophical interest to start where, you know, there's a lot of things to be unhappy about in the world or to think of like to be worried about the future. And yet there's tons and tons of people, you know, some people would say most people who get up every day and they think that good things are going to happen. So that work, a lot of it has been focused on what are the consequences to being optimistic or, or marrying someone who's optimistic. And then I think uh, our biggest project was a culmination a few years ago where we looked at how it changed in response to life events. And with that project, we found that basically it doesn't, which I know we see that with a lot of other traits too, but with optimism, it's just fascinating where like some really devastating things happen to people. And there's a million reasons why they would change how they think about the future. But then, you know, they're pretty resilient and they don't really shift their thinking. And, you know, it's one of those things that I know a lot of personality people can appreciate where when you don't find something that matches your intuition, the results aren't like underwhelming because they're pretty good tests of these things. So that was kind of among the more exciting kind of research in that is looking at how it responds to life events and namely it, it kind of doesn't oh, that's really interesting yeah do you want to uh, give some of the examples of those life events people went through they're really traditional ones like getting your first job and getting married and getting divorced but then yeah it's bereavement both as a romantic partner and as a parent so mm -hmm. there's uh, child bereavement unemployment which i think has really profound effects on people and yeah the study it was three different countries germany and the netherlands and the u.s and i think collectively it was over like thirty thousand people and you know yet we just had hundreds and thousands of people experiencing these life events you mentioned you also study um or you place personality in the context of romantic relationships like couples or close mm -hmm. relationships like couples mm -hmm. what fascinated or what fascinates you about studying personality in the context of mm -hmm. close relationships yeah, so I've always kind of been fascinated by relationships. I've been the recipient of very good relationships in my life, which I think is good. When I was in high school, I this will sound illegal to the listeners, but it's not, I guarantee you. But so I grew up in Chicago and I worked in a bar when I was a teenager. So that I, that's the illegal that's part. Illegal. That's the, that's what it sounds. I wasn't slinging drinks or flipping bottles and things, but I was like getting ice and stocking coolers and emptying ashtrays. And yeah, it was a really fun job for a lot of reasons. There was also a bowling alley attached and like a convenience store. So I have a lot of weird skills like setting pins and fixing like pin machines, like oh, bowling yeah. machines. Really lucrative side hustle, <laughs> fixing bowling machines. But you know, one, one thing is when you work in, in an environment like that, especially for like really long hours and kind of late into the night, um, you kind of just interact with a ton of people. And for them, they go to a bar and they kind of just do so to like connect with other people and talk and share things about their lives and or de-stress or, you know, disclose things. And yeah, just over the course of like, I think the four or five years I worked there, a lot of it was just talking to people about their lives, both the good and the bad, right? Like they'll come in, some days will be better than others. And some days that they're really devastating and it really, really affects them. And, you know, a recurring theme were these people's close relationships, like a lot of euphoria and misery were kind of attributable to what was going on in like their marriages and their friendships mm -hmm. and their coworker relationships. So yeah, I think early on, I just kind of got fascinated by talking to people from there, it kind of blossomed. And then I went to school and 
We were involved with projects about how people choose romantic partners for the first time. That was in Chris Fraley's lab with Claudia Brumbog. Yeah, I just got more and more fascinated by individual differences, how people are so different. And so, yeah, so I think partly it's a mixture of life experience. And then I got really excited by the research. And then, you know, a lot of times, like when we talk about research, a lot of it starts with like the human element of like, well, you know, you're talking with a partner and they do this. And you're like, well, how do they respond? And then like a lot of mental models of how I think about stuff emerge from that kind of experience yeah that's true yeah that's super cool um so a birdie told me <laughs> you're currently uh, conducting a study on group interactions and friendships yes. you want to tell me more about that project yes i'm i'm fascinated by friendships i think it's like maybe one of the next frontiers in relationship science yeah. is kind of getting an appreciation of the other relationships in people's lives as if we only date one person and don't talk to any other humans in our life it's a little ridiculous but yeah so that was um a project funded by the templeton foundation in collaboration with um, wake forest yeah the major crux of the project is it's about honesty and kind of observer reports of honesty and group reports of honesty and it's really cool when you have group data like that because you, you just have all these inputs where they evaluate how honest someone is and if you think you're honest. And so a lot of the project aims are like how delusional are we about our personalities and how honest we are, our virtues and our character strengths and a bunch of things. So yeah, it'll kind of characterize a lot of the next couple projects in lab. You know, beyond the honesty questions, there's questions on narcissism and purpose and how happy you are. And, you know, ultimately we want to find out, you know, what keeps friendships going for the long term. You know, I think when you ask people about their friendships, they're a little bit baffled in terms of like, how do I make friends? Now that I'm like out of elementary school, how do I talk to other humans in such a way that they would want to spend more time with me <laughs> and do fun things together? Like it, in some ways it's a super simple question, but it's thing a lot of people struggle with. And yeah, part of that is also just trying to get insights into that process. So, you know, I think at this point we have over 200 quads, so groups of four friends. Mm -hmm. And it, they're kind of, it's kind of a round robin design for the listeners where we all kind of, they all rate each other. And then the goal is to maybe follow them up someday and see what their friendships are like later in life. It's really, really exciting. I had not collected data like that before. So it's a great learning experience. And then it should yield some really cool findings in the next couple of years. Would you expect that honesty is something where there's a big discrepancy between between someone's self-report and their friend's other reports? Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of different things. So part of it is there's different ways of assessing honesty. That's part of the project as well. So, you know, there are some that are more evaluative. A question like, is your friend a pathological liar? Or does your friend sometimes tell white lies? Those yeah. are two very different worded valenced items yes. for one. And then those are two different types of lies. Yeah. Like, does your friend have a secret life that is not known to you or your other friends? So part of that is to quantify that difference. I mean, the the really interesting thing is that as we get closer to people, we often view them in a more positive light. So weirdly, like, our closest with others might be compromising our judgment sometimes. But having said that, honesty is like a socially valued thing where, you know, we want to be friends with honest people and people who have our best interests are often honest with us on average. So I wouldn't be shocked if we find some pretty good agreement between the people. But yeah, I mean, it's a testable question. And there's different ways of quantifying different types of biases. And yeah, that's that's the goal is to figure out exactly 
exactly how far off are people when they answer the question, I'm an honest person, am I an honest person? Super cool. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned this already a little bit with the friendship, but where do you see the field of personality and close relationships going in the future? What would you like to see in the next decade? Yeah, it's a big question. Yeah, over time, there's there's this thing where there topics like gain a lot of notoriety and interest. Mm -hmm. And it, it, then you go to a conference and there's tons and tons of posters about it. And then, you know, kind of like goes away a little bit, but is nevertheless persistent in there. Historically, I've just been really bad at tracking what gets <laughs> hot and exciting. But you know, it's what you do, you know? Oh, yeah, everything. I mean, you're the trendsetter. Right. You're just... Yeah, honesty and groups. Yeah. Groups, yeah. <laughs> just tell the audience what they have to study. In the what am I working years. on today? That's the future. <laughs> no, we have a very modest lab. So one thing I've noticed at conferences is right now there's some skepticism about like the magnitude of impact of close relationships and exactly how other people influence us. And that's a question I thought was long settled, but then... You know, there's some work by Samantha Joel suggesting that partner effects, which are the effects of your partner's psychological traits on your outcomes, those might be overstated. A lot of how you think about relationships might be just in your head and like less attributable to the people around you. So it's it's a controversial idea because I, I just told you so much about how other people matter and for kind of everything we do. But we also find null effects and partner effects sometimes yeah and then, yeah right and they're small and um so i think so i think really quantifying how other people influence us so that's that's part of it we do a lot of matching and similarity stuff in lab which you're involved with and you know we don't really find a lot and yet there's tons of intuition about like mm -hmm. when a friend tells you that they're dating somebody oftentimes they say like oh i want someone who's compatible on these things who's similar on these things yeah it's it's been a little underwhelming that research so but again that is part of the broader agenda of like how do people influence us and then i that's a negative that that's led to existential crises <laughs> in my head about what i'm studying and then a positive one is I think that there's like a greater appreciation of like the diversity of the human experience. Mm -hmm. So our work and friendship is partially aimed at that, mm -hmm. saying that you have these other relationships in your lives. You know, there's work on singlehood, like the experience of being a single person. And one thing that that research consistently shows is that, you know, single people, like they're pretty happy on average. They're not miserable. Mm -hmm. You know, if anything, relationships can cause a lot of stress too. I, yeah. I'm sure you and listeners would understand that they're very anxiety provoking and they can be really tough. But then single people have tons of other things in their lives that can enrich them and make them happy. So that, and then, yeah, like we, we've done some study on people on the asexual spectrum in relationships and not in relationships and friendship. And then, yeah, my former student, Giwano, is really interested in the singlehood question. It, weirdly, I think part of the future with relationship science is moving a little bit away from relationships, which is kind of ironic. Or like partnerships? Yeah, partnerships yeah. specifically. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, single people have friends and they have hobbies and they have, you know, fulfilling yeah. work lives. So yeah. those two things is like getting a little bit deeper in something that we've studied a really long time mm -hmm. and then branching on stuff that we historically have not studied. And people we haven't studied so I, I would probably say those are two things that i think about a lot yeah. is trying to enhance kind of into diverse populations and ways of thinking about things so there's an atlantic um, article that is called what a friendship not marriage was at the center mm -hmm. of life yeah mm -hmm. uh, it was published in october 2020 yeah. um, mm -hmm. it's it's a topic that my friend and i often talk about mm -hmm. how like people value romantic relationships above everything else and yeah. sometimes they even like lose friends over romantic yeah. partners yeah. 
but how much influence is actually there and how much influence is there from our friends yeah i I think that's really yeah i mean and i love relationships and i want people to study them and i want people to have them but then you know sometimes it's they're overstated a little bit like Mm -hmm. that you would you wouldn't have a full life without a romantic partner. Um, like, I don't think that that's fair. And yeah, like centering friendships, you know, there's there's whole critiques of like romantic relationships and marriage about how like we put them on a pedestal or we have such high expectations. So this is like an Eli Finkel idea where, you know, we expect partners to be everything, you know, amazing um, caregivers and parents and lovers and friends and confidants and therapists uh and um coaches coaches yeah um hype hype (laughs) partners um and you know maybe that's unreasonable to you know expect that from one person and you know perhaps friendships are ways we can get some of those things from multiple friends you wouldn't say oh this one friend has to fulfill all my needs and all of my hobbies with similar and everything it's like oh this is the person i hang out with when we go hiking and this is the person i do this with right and i can disclose things yeah so it's not like me being like to my friend Katie, like, I've decided to stop dating. I will now long <laughs> just lump everything on me. <laughs> you are now my best friend, and you uh, will have to hear all my yeah, life but you problems. Yeah, you always, like, multiple <laughs> friends, too. It, totally. And that, yeah. I mean, that's good for your friends, because not all they're not so burdened. <laughs> and it's good for you, because, like, you're not as let down. And, oh, yeah. and like, yeah, if it's, if it's more kind of... Um, yeah like distributed yeah more evenly across people then yeah like i think then you probably get weirdly more support than just one marriage or more support than kind of just one yeah relationship so yeah so i think but like we don't know a ton about like social networks and how they change and ebb and flow and you know that's something that like longitudinally lifespan wise like we're hoping to maybe try to characterize too uh in lab another research area of yours is studying personality from a lifespan perspective Mm -hmm. that seems to me it seems to be another common thread that um, started since grad school and you mentioned this with attachment tell me a little bit about your training in lifespan research and how this has evolved in your research so i'm not going to mention the paul baltes award and all that (laughs) but yeah so yeah, weirdly, I think that that was also like a little bit from my personal experience where the motivation, I'll tell you about the training in mm-hmm. a second, where um, my parents have led really fascinating or fascinating and interesting lives. Um, I mean, I, I love them deeply. And then I like most people, I also find them frustrating sometimes. Um, but the one thing that I will always respect is kind of where they've been and what they've done and how hard, how hard they've worked. Um, yeah, like my mom started as like, she went to this thing called secretary school so for those listeners who don't know what it is it it's kind of exactly what it sounds like where you (laughs) you go to a school and they teach you a lot of administrative tasks so a lot of a lot of women her from her cohort would do that so she ends up having four kids Mm -hmm. so that she has that link to that generation but then yeah she was she was an administrative assistant at um a place on the south side of chicago called saint xavier university it's it's popular for nursing majors and one thing she was able to do is she was able to go back to college for free just by working there and then she ends up getting a degree and getting a better job and then she ends up going to grad school uh when i'm 
kind of like in late childhood. So it was kind of a fun, so I'm not a first generation student, but because I actually like saw my parents go through Mm -hmm. college. And then my dad, who was a janitor at one point, got half tuition by being married to mom. (laughs) So, so, you know, when I think about them, when I was 18, they were working these jobs and then like my mom has like an MBA now Mm -hmm. and my dad has like an accounting degree. And then this is the lifespan part. During that, they had four kids. All the problems that come along with kids, all all the challenges of life in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. And it kind of makes me feel bad sometimes because I have done a lot, n- none of the things compared to them. And, they, and yet they've been so kind of resilient and sturdy. So mm-hmm. it's a running theme about just finding people fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- so then I go to um, Michigan and it's the only grad school I got into. <laughs> And it's a good grad school to get into if it's one you're going to get into. We're not complaining. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I was a bit lost. And then, you know, one thing I really loved was they cared a lot about it. There was data readily available. There's really good funding. And, yeah, we were there was a lifespan interest group there. And we just heard talks and read articles about the most diverse things in lifespan psychological research. So we've... I know a lot of stuff about like child development from that and gerontology and midlife and relationships. And part of it is just kind of giving students the space to like learn about those things, read about it, hear talks. Yeah, so I think partially that's why I can, I often talk to a lot of kind of diverse people with diverse interests is like, I had this really formative experience in grad school where we just read a ton of weird stuff and it's... It was a time in life where grad, like grad school was, was hard and is hard for a lot of people. But then at the same time, it was just this like really transformative experience where I learned a lot. I grew up as a person. I My horizons were broadened in the way that like I haven't experienced since or I knew, my friends who didn't go to grad school didn't have such an experience. So mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of it were people that were just also fascinated by other humans and said hey let's study this together Mm -hmm. um and yeah i had supportive advisors who encouraged that so yeah in that sense i was really really lucky uh you also study personality in in cultural contexts so just between the two of us um what annoys you most about cultural psychology oh my god so many things (laughs) i can get canceled on the podcast but (laughs) the following answer it should be a theoretical. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> too much theory, right? Am I right? Uh, too many taxonomies for how Not to describe. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you, maybe you might struggle with as like a yeah. personality social psychologist yeah. publishing your cultural work. I mean, it's rooted in a lot of historical things about cultural similarities and differences where you know, there's a few things that kind of characterize everyone everywhere. Um, and that, I think that's a good thing that a lot of personality people can appreciate where, mm-hmm. yeah, when we talk about romantic partners, you know, I think everybody wants someone who's really loving and caring and yeah. compassionate listener. And so, yeah, we don't find a lot of cultural differences in that because it's like, oh, yeah. like really nice people everywhere. Yeah, like that's the least controversial thing you can say. And, you know, I think yeah like I don't that's not like a super insightful or sexy finding so you know we'll do these really large scale studies that I I think are kind of among you know when when you see a study that's engages in the translation process and the measurement process Mm -hmm. and you know is pretty tempered in their conclusions and you know those are my favorite papers and you know a lot of them 
don't find super dramatic differences sometimes. But then cultures do differ in really important ways. So yeah, you know, I think some of the frustration boils down to measurement and a really traditional approach is to validate it in German or English and then apply it or translate it and just throw it to a bunch, of, a bunch of other people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, we're, we act shocked when things don't, mm-hmm. you know, aren't reproduced in different, um, the measurement specifically. Mm-hmm. I was joking earlier about uh, taxonomies for describing cultures, but there is actually a lot of them and individualism and collectivism in particular. There's like just a lot of controversy in how it's measured, what it means. Mm-hmm. Like my friend Thomas Telhelm has tried to interrogate this and come up with different ways of characterizing it. And there are people who are very set in their ways and they, you know, they really love how cultures are described now. Um, They're really resistant to like introducing new ways of thinking about it or consolidating old ways. Like maybe these two things are really, really similar and we can just join them together, you know, Mm -hmm. just in a way, way that's like better to kind of characterize cultures. So, you know, data availability is getting a lot better. So that, that's that been an exciting thing that when I've come of age, like as part of the open science and reproducibility movement, part of that was like collecting better data. Um, so if you look at cross-cultural personality stuff, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, a lot of it will be like them comparing five countries at a time. But now, you know, you can compare like 50 or 60 and, and the measures were pretty well validated or they they at least try and then so yeah that's an exciting frontier like it, when data gets easier to collect when we don't always rely on self-report that's another exciting direction so yeah like in terms of being a student now it's still a stressful experience <laughs> you know it's still you know grad school is not super fun all the time but in terms of like a methods methodological time and data availability time and like a broader more focused concern on like mental health there are benefits to being a grad student now that like you and i didn't experience or our advisors didn't experience so mm-hmm. you know the training alone and having open source materials like i think that's really benefited things like cross this is the question was cultural mm-hmm. cross cultural analyses we'll have a whole new generation of students who are equipped to study those types of questions and they'll finally have data where they can do it so that's mm-hmm. that's kind of an exciting time yeah do you want to mention the gratitude study just because I think it exemplifies? Rebecca wants me to mention the gratitude study because she's a co-author on it <laughs> as well. Topic. Yeah, but it's weird. Yeah, we didn't mention the friendship study oh, she, that she's not an author on. I know, I know, I'm kidding. So the gratitude study we got access to like a pretty large data set with a bunch of different countries. And I'll I'll tell people the sample size and countries in a second. But part of that was like I I knew that these people that I was tangentially connected with, I'm like, you know, I, I'm pretty sure they collect these type of data, but then like, I don't think they're really using it. And I, I'm not sure if they think about things in these particular ways. So I randomly emailed this person. I'm like, you don't know me. I, I think I said we had mutual friends or something, and which was not helpful. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I said, you know, I think you collect the, these, these types of data. And, you know, I have a few different ideas for questions and I kind of laid it out and what would be needed. And they said, yeah, here. I've never heard the story before. Oh yeah, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> And the people are really generous too. So I, you know, I'd asked, do you want to be like authors or there's other things too. Like, Mm -hmm. are there restrictions? Like, do you have to review things that get published or something? And uh, he's like, no, you're good. Mm -hmm. Um, So he sent me 4.5 million people from 
just the data of those four or five people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. They didn't show up to my door one day. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the data set. <laughs> yeah, with just like yeah, millions and millions of people, and then from how many countries? From 88 different countries, it was translated into like 44 different languages. And again, you don't see that a lot. So so that's a scenario where like, again, that wasn't possible 10 years ago. And then when you have data like that, a lot of things are possible. Like we we just did kind of how age differs across culture. Does it depend on what culture that is? And um, But beyond that, there's tons of really cool things you can do. And so, yeah, like that, that was again, culmination of years and years of thinking about these issues and what's possible. And then like Veep Blydorn had like partially inspired that and some old Costa McRae work. And, you know, a lot of theories we say should vary across cultures and all social investment stuff, all maturity things, part, partly they're all reliant on person situation transactions and cultural presses and the timing of those you know events and investments so so i'd like to do more of that type type of stuff in the future and it does involve emailing strangers and asking for data and like sometimes it goes really well there's tons of there's a few times it doesn't go well but yeah like people are really generous and there's nothing more exciting when someone like emails you being like hey we'd like to i think you we can bring these things to the table and there's a synergy that makes it really exciting that's super cool Okay, so the last topic we're going to talk about from your research is uh, you also study pets. Yes. <laughs> and I came very close to you getting tenure, I think. <laughs> yeah. So close relationships do not only happen between two humans, but also between a human and an animal, like yeah. a pet. Can you tell me about your emerging line of research <laughs> on pets and pet ownership? It's among my most exciting, I'll tell you that. Like, this has all been great. It's all, yeah, it's, yeah, like, a fascinating conversation. I love but, the lab, but I'm going to open up a new one. Uh, yeah, this is, but this is the real stuff that people, it's really funny. Like, we, yeah, we do the, what I think, what I think are impressive studies. And then we do the, the animal research, which is impressive for other reasons, I think and interesting but then yeah people really like the pet stuff and they don't care as much about like me toiling away at collecting group data and attachment and optimism yeah they people re really love their pets and yeah like to their credit pets are amazing yeah, we should yeah, start yeah. with that like <laughs> yeah like they're right I'm, I'm the one who's wrong a lot of people who study pet human interactions a lot of them are focused on whether or not they make you happy mm -hmm. and that's a great question and really important and it has implications for the pets too, right? And how we yeah. treat them. Um, our research is a little bit different. A lot of it is kind of um, what humans do to change their pets, like psychologically. Some of it is like, how do you care for them? How do you interact with them? That maybe changes their dispositions or how the dispositions are expressed in certain circumstances. Like for example, if I have an aggressive dog, right. like what do I do? Yep. Maybe change that yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or if they're like struggling with impulse control mm -hmm. or, you know, bad behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are, what are concrete things humans are doing? So in, in a way it's like, I sometimes view it as like an animal welfare type of idea where mm -hmm. it's like, what are things humans are ethically doing to make their pets lives better or not? So weirdly, a lot of it was just applying personality ideas that like all of your listeners have probably thought about or done but to pets. So like one of the first studies we did was looking at kind of normative age differences in mm -hmm. pet personality. 
uh, and then correlating that with some stuff, some things humans do. And that's something that people have done with humans a really, really long time. There's tons and tons of those papers. But it, it's really interesting because it, it made us really think really intently about methods and, you know, pets aren't getting back to the self-report idea. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. It, you can do it. It's, it's really hard. <laughs> it's not super reliable. Um <laughs> I remember I, I had a friend and I asked if I could give her dog the narcissistic personality inventory. <laughs> so I printed out statements on like sheets of paper and I, you know, I put them up in front of the dog and tried to see if the nose would. Hi, they jump or? No, yeah. <laughs> I put a mirror in front of the dog and how much she look at the mirror. Um, but yeah, so I did it as sort of a joke to being like, okay, what's the stability of a personality measure when you give it to a dog for real and it's really low <laughs> the, the <laughs> alpha is oh yeah terrible uh, it's like they're just responding randomly like we joke but that's actually a problem with a lot of mm-hmm. psychological research like if you want to assess temperament in children we're interested in aging people experiencing cognitive decline and you ask them questions about introspection and you know so it's actually like a more per- pervasive issue than we think so yeah and there has been work done on you know if questionnaires are reliable in characterizing pets and Again, the personality people at home, like they've done factor analyses and they've combined measures and there's IRT models and they measure test retestability, like all things that we do, but they're like animal behavior scientists. One cool thing about those studies is that we show that there are personality differences after like the midlife of a dog, which is also a thing we see in humans, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, change is possible after a certain or across lifespan, actually. So like one thing we found is that even after a few years after the dog's been alive, you can still kind of train the dog. Because like we grew up with Huskies and a few other different dogs. And I think at some point we gave up training them because we thought it was just impossible. And then my friend Jonathan Weaver got a dog, adopted a dog, and we were talking about these issues. And I'm like, you know, we we could probably like do a study on this. <laughs> and uh, this is how so and many things. Everyone got embarrassed that you kept going. Yeah, like yeah. no, everyone did the responsible thing and continued their real <laughs> important work. And I'm like, no, this is important. So you did one on on dogs. Yeah, but you also did a cat personality study. Yeah, the cat one we're working on right now, and that one's bigger. <laughs> we decided to go even bigger. What is bigger? Oh, more more cats, more cats and dogs. Oh, it's about like two thousand. Um, yeah, reports of pets and cats. And the cat one is just like really far, widely reaching. We have the cat personality, obviously, but then like an extensive battery of cat behavior and cat health. There's cat obesity measures. There's cat health checklists. There's like a behavioral problems checklist. So yeah, people were very enthusiastic to fill out the survey, which I enjoyed. And the really, and Brent Donald had recommended this where, and he's involved on the project. We just, we gave them this kind of long questionnaire. And at the the end, we're like, we're so appreciative that she spent so much time talking about your, your kitty. And um, (laughs) is there anything else that, you know, we wish you wish we asked about or anything you want to tell us about? And we gave them a blank, just a box, free response box. And I'm I'm not kidding you. People wrote like multiple paragraphs about just describing their pet's personality and their behavior. Then they get a debriefing and people pulled my email from that and were sending me photos of their cats. Um, and yeah, the cat, they told me the cat's names. And so we have that data for the listeners at home. Like there's some mixed evidence about whether pets make you happy. But for some people, it makes them very, very happy. And it's an integral part of their life. And no better illustration of that as people writing just massive entries about how much they love their cats and it was interesting because 
it was cool being in a supportive environment. And, you know, I asked people, like, is this an appropriate, inappropriate thing to do? And they're like, no, like, it's, it speaks to a lot of, like, kind of big questions we have. And it's also fun. Like, it's, there's no denying that it's, like, a fun thing to think about. But again, yeah, it gets back to the beginning where I said, I gave you the elevator pitch, but then there's so many things in our lives that kind of give us meaning and purpose and happiness and you know for a lot of people it's their pets um, they belong to their close relationships yeah and they're embedded in the social network so yeah and yeah so it, in a way that's that's been a really fun it kind of invigorates me sometimes on days that like some projects are more difficult than others and so lastly for those listeners who don't know us bill and i are actually the same age <laughs> um but i'm the completely uh, different spectrum. you're 23 <laughs> Uh, completely different uh, ends of the uh, uh, academic success. <laughs> oh, no. So I wanted to ask about like your productivity tips and like what have you learned since grad school about mm. how can people become productive researchers? Do you have any advice for early career scholars? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't love talking about this because like I think focusing just on productivity isn't it's not fun to talk about and like it it pulls in tons of like unhealthy motivations for doing things and not yeah like pursuing just tons of things for the sake of it is not good however like i think if you get more productive it, it opens up other things in your life like to relax or invest in your friendships or your hobbies yeah yeah, yeah. work-life balance yeah, <laughs> yeah well i just wanted to say that ahead of time so that yeah tell you that i worked 14 hours a day <laughs> right yeah so they're not like oh bill's crazy that's why he no I, I do it so i can like watch tv more tv later and see movies later but yeah yeah like at one yeah like in early grad school i really struggled with getting stuff done and i was a really bad procrastinator i am now kind of now too you're a better procrastinator yeah you say that <laughs> but yes yeah you know i was just kind of spinning my wheels an expression where you're kind of just not moving forward but it seems like I was working a lot and then you know at some point I did this weird mental trick where I was like you know I'm really good at getting stuff done like the night before something is due mm -hmm. and I'm guessing a lot of listeners are too where you maybe waited a little bit too long and then oh there's a due date now I was like if I could just channel that superhero <laughs> that I become <laughs> six hours before something's due that'd be great and yeah, so I, th I think at one point I had like an R&R for something and then the editorial team made a mistake in the emails. You know how you get like an email from a journal, mm -hmm. people at home, and they'll say, please do this in the next 30 days or the next 60 days or the next 90 days. The letter said, do this in the next seven days. Whoa. And it was like full <laughs> reviews. And it was like clearly a mistake and, you know, any normal person. And at that time you didn't extend or in our deadlines. Yeah. Or, or, well, I was a student too, so I was really nervous about it. And I got it on like a Friday. So, like, two days are Saturday and Sunday. So, I can't. So, if, if this is not a mistake, <laughs> I will only have like four working mm -hmm. day or business days to do this. So, on Monday, I'm like, you know, what if I just like tried to do it? And like, if this wasn't a mistake. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just kind of, it opened up a lot of introspective thinking about how I work best and mm -hmm. why I procrastinate which I think is worth thinking about mm -hmm. and yeah like a lot of writing advice is like just sit down and do it which is not always helpful like of course that's what I want to do and I would do that that's not my problem <laughs> like it's <laughs> you're not you're able to write right yeah it's not like I've never written anything but mm -hmm. a lot of it is being like okay well I just need like a large chunk of time to work on something really deliberatively and other people other people don't but yeah at some point I'm just breaking down tasks into smaller tasks that helps being a better procrastinator in the sense that if something is 
really painful and you want to avoid it? Could you do something else that's somewhat helpful in the meantime? That's why we kind of work on so many different things <laughs> at the same time. But yeah, a lot of it is finding out how you work best and thinking like, when were you kind of at your best in terms of like writing and doing research and analyzing data? And it could be like early in the morning for some people. For me, it's like late afternoon into kind of the night. Yeah, and a lot of it was just like, you know, you can do this, just sit here and do it. And then it'll be done. Like imagine I had to get this to Rebecca or to Robin in the next couple of days. Oh, I better work on it for their sake too. And collaborations have helped in that regard too. Yeah, reminding yourself like the contribution of a paper and why it's cool. Because because research is such a long process, sometimes the enthusiasm like wanes a little bit. And sometimes like talking to a friend about it, they're like, what, you're studying cats? Like, tell me all about it. And then you're like, oh yeah, I forgot how exciting and cool this is. And, you know, we work really hard as a lab. I don't want to like minimize it. Like we, we spend a lot of time writing and analyzing data and reading stuff. But a lot of it is kind of like blocking out time and it does get easier over time too. And I discovered that too. So when I wrote the, that R&R really, really quickly, mm-hmm. So you did it in time. Yeah. And the email was crazy because I sent it to the co-authors being like, I think this is a mistake, but I did it anyway. (laughs) Here you go. And like for them, it was, they liked that part, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't, it was pretty stressful to do, but it was kind of like, oh wait, no, I I can do stuff. And if I just kind of motivate myself, I can get it done. And that, yeah, that was just like an eye-opening experience. It hasn't happened since, thankfully. (laughs) And like, it's not as anxiety provoking or stressful, but a lot of it is, yeah, just like sitting down, breaking down tasks. The experience, it does get easier. So like writing first drafts is a lot easier now. Yeah. Um, just because like we've written a lot. So yeah, I guess just investing in like trying to figure out why you do the things you do. You should do that with all sorts of things in your life. But yeah. <laughs> in terms of work too, like it, it was just trying to figure out the best person situation match. And that kind of led to good things over time. Thank you so much, Bill, for um, having this in-person interview with me. Yeah, thanks so much.